All right, well, if you'd like to open up to Acts chapter 21, that's where we're starting and going through to 23. Uh, I just realised I forgot to mention that these congregational meetings coming up, we, we want to offer them as a hybrid meeting, so you can access them on Caruso if you need, and the web address for Caruso is on the church website. You'll find it. Okay, let's just pray as we come to God's word. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you would guide us as we look at Acts. Lord, as we see what you did in this early church, that we might be encouraged in our day as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, did you know that mission work wasn't that big 500 years ago? Did you know that? Overseas mission work in the time of the Protestant Reformation. Mission, would you believe, wasn't really that big a thing. Uh, in the history of the church. It wasn't until about the 1800s that the modern missionary movement began. And you had these great figures like William Carey going to India, David Livingston going across to Africa, and Hudson Taylor going to China to start that amazing work there. I, I um, got that wrong in an essay once. I said Hudson Taylor went to Africa and the, the marker didn't like that. Um, but yeah, these great people started these, these mission works. And then in the 1900s, uh, about two or three big worldwide missions conferences began where this missionary fervour came into God's church. Well, the question that uh, we're asking today is who directs and guarantees the mission? Who directs the success of the church's mission? You see... A number of years ago, there was a bunch of people, they were called the deists, and what they believed was that God had set the world up, got it ticking over, and then he'd left, and that he wasn't actually involved in the church, wasn't involved in the world, that he was gone, that he didn't care. But that's not what we think as modern-day Christians, is it? The question we're asking is, who directs and guarantees the success of the church's mission. In the book of Acts here, we're going to see Paul go through a lot of tough stuff. And we're going to see it would have been the end of him if God wasn't with him. It's the same with the church in this day and age, with Christians throughout the world. If God just set it up and left us, we'd be doomed. So let's have a look at what happens to the Apostle Paul in these sections of the book of Acts. We're just going to step through this long passage and have a look at what happened when Paul came to Jerusalem. So from verse 1, chapter 21, we see that Paul has left the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, and he's moving on to Jerusalem. He had basically, just like Jesus, he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Paul wanted to go there and to minister there, even though he knew that trouble and hardship and persecution and possibly death would await him. As we read the epistles of the New Testament, we see that he's, he wants to take some money there. The Jerusalem church was very poor and the church in other places like Philippi uh, were wealthy and they wanted to give. Well, actually they weren't wealthy, but they were generous. They wanted to give to the church at Jerusalem and so Paul is determined to get there, to give them this this offering. So that's why he's heading there. But we see as he stops at different places along the way to Jerusalem, the Christians don't want him to go there. We see he's sailing throughout the Mediterranean 
and he's stopping at the different towns on the way to Jerusalem. He gets to Tyre in verses 3 and 4, finds the Christians there, hangs out with them, but they don't want him to go. Verse 4, through the Spirit they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. He moves on, lands at another place called Ptolemais and hangs out with some Christians there. Moves on to Caesarea, which was the seaport in Israel, Herod's great seaport. And he gets there and he meets Philip, who was the, the deacon, the evangelist who had been preaching in the earlier parts of Acts. Do you remember Philip? He was the guy who evangelised the Ethiopian eunuch and God's kind of flying him around the country almost. It's pretty amazing. Well, here he is in Caesarea at his pad with his four daughters and Paul shows up. In verse 10, we see a prophet comes, a prophet that they'd seen earlier in the book of Acts. His name was Agabus. And he comes down from Judea and he has a prophecy for Paul. Have a look at verse 11. It says, Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, men, if you were at a men's shop buying a belt and the, the guy selling it said that to you, you wouldn't buy it, would you? But this is a pretty scary prophecy. He's saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, God is telling me, God is saying that you are going to get arrested and you're going to get handed over to the Romans. In verse 12, Paul's friends in Caesarea were devoured by this comment. They pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Mate, it's dangerous. You're going to die. But look at Paul's determination. Verse 13, he's actually crying. He says, why? And they're crying. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready, he says, not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, he would not be dissuaded. And so they gave up and said, okay, God's will will be done. So look at this guy's determination to serve God, knowing that there was going to be great danger. He says elsewhere in Acts, in every city I go to, the Holy Spirit tells me I'm in trouble. Knowing that God was saying there would be danger there, he still wanted to go and serve God's church in Jerusalem. It's an encouragement for us too, isn't it, in our service of the Lord? What kind of sacrifices are we willing to make in our service of God? God may not necessarily be calling us to die, but what is he calling us to in our life to serve him? What sacrifices would we make? Paul's passion is a great example for us, isn't it? So we see that he gets to Jerusalem eventually. See in verse 15, they get ready, they go up to Jerusalem and they go to the home of a guy called Nason, a guy from Cyprus, a Christian. From verse 17 and onwards, we see him get there and talk to the Jerusalem leaders. Now in verse 17, he goes to see James. That was the brother of Jesus. And he had become the head of the Jerusalem church. He was a bit like the archbishop of the Jerusalem church. So Paul goes to see him. He greets them and he reports in detail what God's been doing through his three missionary journeys. Now they're encouraged by Paul's ministry 
Remember at one point they were all terrified of Paul because he was the Christian killer the first time he went to Jerusalem but now they know he's an amazing missionary. God's transformed him and so they're encouraged by his work. But there is a problem. There is a problem that we see is happening in Jerusalem at the time. See in verse 20... They're saying thousands of Jews in this city are believing in God, but they're zealous for the law. And the people in Jerusalem are being told that Paul is teaching Jews to turn away from the Jewish religion totally. You see, it was tough for the early Christians, for the early Jewish Christians. Think about it. They'd been following the Old Testament and Judaism for their whole life. So now that their Messiah has come, how much of the old stuff do you get rid of and how much of it do you still believe? Surely you don't throw out the entire Old Testament when you become a Christian. So this was a really difficult thing for them to deal with. And some of them had heard that Paul was dodgy and that Paul was getting rid of all the Old Testament laws. And so the wise elders and apostles of the church... Tell Paul we've got a plan to make them realise that you're not dodgy. This is what we want you to do. There are four men who have made a vow. Take these men and join them in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. That sounds a bit strange to us, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with having your head shaved, by the way. (laughs) But this was a, a special Jewish practice from the Old Testament, a vow where Paul could show that he's not throwing out the Old Testament, that he is obedient to God's word. And so he goes and he does it. Verse 26, he takes the men, he purifies himself according to the law with them and he goes to the temple to give notice of all of that. So notice again, Paul's desire to do whatever he can to reach people You know, elsewhere in the Bible, he says, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek. I become all things to all people so that by the grace of God I might reach some. You know, it's hard for a Presbyterian to hear, but we can bend the rules sometime, can't we? It's okay to bend the rules for the gospel and to, the official word is, contextualise to change ourselves, to, to work within the context that we're in to reach people. If you don't like salami, maybe go and eat some salami to minister to your Italian friend. We can change what we do to reach out for the gospel as we see Paul does here. Well, next we see what happens to Paul when things go a bit crazy. See in verse 27... Some Jews from the province of Asia, that's probably around the area of Ephesus, saw Paul at the temple. Remember, they didn't like him up in those parts. They stirred up the crowd and they seized Paul, shouting, Men of Israel, this is the guy who's messing everything up. Paul actually hadn't done anything wrong, but they thought that he had at that point. Verse 30, the whole city is aroused. It's like the Cronulla riots, which I was there, although I didn't instigate. Um, The whole city is aroused and the people come running from every direction, seizing Paul and dragging him from the temple and trying to kill him. Remember our question is, who's running God's mission? Who's going to ensure that the mission of God continues? 
How much of the Bible would have been written if Paul dies right here? How many more churches would have been planted? Uh, Christianity needed this man to continue. And so God sustains him. The commander of the Roman troops finds out, verse 31, and he runs down to the crowd. Lucky his home base was nearby. Runs down to the crowd and they stop beating Paul. He binds Paul with two chains and he asks him what's going on and the crowd is kind of going crazy. Verse 36, away with him. What struck me in this passage that we're looking at today is the response that Paul gets is a bit like what happened to Jesus, isn't it? Away with this guy, away with him. And then later on when he comes before the Sanhedrin, standing before the Jewish rulers as Jesus did and getting rejected as well. So Paul asks to speak to the crowd. He speaks to them in their language from the local area, which was Aramaic. And when he does that, they're all pretty impressed and they quieten down and listen to him. In chapter 22, his speech there to the crowd is basically his testimony, his marvellous testimony of finding Jesus. He tells them there in chapter 22, verse 3, that he is a Jew born in Tarsus but brought up in Jerusalem and trained by a very famous rabbi, Gamaliel, thoroughly trained in the law of Israel and just as zealous as any of them were. He says, I persecuted Christians to their death, arresting men and women and throwing them into prison. He was heading to Damascus, as we know, and he recalls the the moment that he met Jesus. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Paul is blinded by this light and he's taken into the city of Damascus and he tells them how he received his sight again. He tells them he goes back to Jerusalem, verse 17. He's praying at the temple. He falls into a trance and sees the Lord Jesus speaking. He says, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. So... His speech to the Jews might be a little offensive at that that point, but they're still listening. They're still hearing him out until he says one more thing. Have a look at verse 21. Then Jesus says to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this man's major mission in life is going to help non-Jews follow the Jewish God. And the crowd once again goes nuts. Paul needs to be rescued again from their calls for death verse 22 they listened to him until he'd said that but then they raised their voices rid the earth of him he's not fit to live they're throwing their cloaks in in the air flinging dust in the air which was a a sign back then of great offense and the commander the roman commander needs to rescue paul again but of course we know it wasn't just the roman commander rescuing paul was it it was god it was jesus enabling paul's mission to continue now if you thought that the romans were kind to their to their um detainees see what happens they take paul in and they flog him verse 24 he directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out 
what was going on. It was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. So Paul pulls that, pulls that card out of his back pocket and he does actually avoid the, uh, the punishment. But the Roman commander wants to know what's all this ruckus about. And so he's going to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in chapter 23 to find out what's going on. So let's have a look at that, Acts chapter 23. So Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin and he, he's going to make a speech to them. Verse 2, At this the high priest orders those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. At that point, Paul gets rid of all niceties and he's a bit upset about this. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And then Paul quotes the law again, verse 5. I didn't realise he was the high priest when I uh, paid him out. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul is showing he knows God's law. They shouldn't think he doesn't get the Old Testament. Then Paul uses his great wit, doesn't he? from verse 6 and onward. Paul was a Pharisee and he knew that the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, didn't get along. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the afterlife and angelic beings. The Sadducees did not. So Paul decides to throw a little grenade in between them and get them chatting. He says in verse 6, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And then a dispute breaks out and that actually uh, really breaks out. We see that they thought that Paul was about to be torn apart by them in verse 10. And once again, he's rescued for a third time by the commander and by God. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified me about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So God's got this. He's with Paul. He's going to send him not just to Jerusalem, but to the centre of the ancient world, to Rome itself. Paul's fourth rescue in this passage comes from verse 12 and onwards, where the Jews are actually going to just kill him. Have a look at verse 12. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Now it seems that Paul had some family in Jerusalem because his nephew is around at the time. His nephew gets wind of this plot to kill his uncle and he goes to tell Paul. Paul sends him off to the Roman uh, centurion. He sends him off to the Roman commander and the commander takes action. Verse 23 He calls two of his centurions and he orders them, get ready a detachment, get this, of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight, provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. So in the midst of this persecution and this aggression, God's protecting Paul, isn't he? Check out that army he has surrounding him to get him where he needs to go where God wants him to go and next week we'll see that he goes to this governor Felix and comes before a few different governors and kings in the next few chapters 
so we can see what's happening, can't we? Who directs and guarantees the success of the church's mission? God does. God is in control of the mission of the church. God is going to make sure that his word goes out. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail upon it. What God wants to happen to his church and to his word will happen. So when we go through times in life where we're wondering what God's up to, wondering what God's happening, he's doing to his church, wondering where he is, passages like this, indeed the whole Bible, gives us hope. God is in control of what happens to his church. Just imagine how terrified the evangelical Christians in the Ukraine are right now. How horrible would it be to be there? and to be believing in our powerful God, but to see a wicked nation attacking them and destroying their country and killing their children. Friends, we Christians, we have a God who does not let us go. And even in the fire, we can trust in him. We can trust that his mission will continue. You know, in some of these countries where it's difficult to be a Christian, It's often in the underground church, the church that's hiding. That's where the real church growth happens, isn't it? Over the past 50 years, how much church growth has happened in China, for example? A place where the the church really is underground, is doing their own thing, and yet they're spreading like a wildfire. For God's working through that place, even though they're in great danger. God is the guarantee of the mission of the church. Just this week, thinking about these things, um, I read read up on some of my old college notes about a guy called William Carey, who I mentioned before. He was a missionary from Britain, I believe, who went to India back in 1793. He sat there in a church meeting in, in Britain and he said... I really want to go and do some mission work and tell people about Jesus. Someone stood up and went, sit down, mate. You know, when God wants to do that, he won't need you. But Kerry thankfully didn't listen to that. And he hopped on the boat with his family and he went to India, a place that didn't have the gospel. He was there for eight years ministering before someone was converted to Christ. So push on in ministry, you know, if you're not sure if you're making a difference, push on, you are, and eventually God's fruit will come. But, you know, after that, an amazing work happened. Churches have come out of this ministry in India. Bible colleges, universities, schools. And now in India, though it's a a very big Hindu nation, there is a Christian presence there. God is is working on his mission, guaranteeing the mission, helping us to make disciples, building his church. You know, I think what this can do for us as Christians, it can help us to trust in God, it can help us to have peace in a world that's against God, and it can give us less anxiety to be a Christian in the world. When we remember that God's got this, when we remember that God's behind this, when we remember that God will build his church, it will help us 
to have less anxiety about the antagonism towards Christianity in this world. You're worried about being a Christian at school, at work, in, in the public space, worried about what people will say about you, about your views. Yes, you may be persecuted. You may be rejected. But God's got this, hasn't he? He's building his church. And so when we remember that, we can have less anxiety about the dangers of Christianity in the world because we trust God and he's building his church. So don't be afraid to go out there on a limb and tell people what you think about the Bible. Trust God. He's building his church. He's got you just like he had Paul. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail upon it. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for building your church. We praise you for your heart for the nations. And Lord, we pray that your word would continue to go out in, in peacetime, in wartime. Lord, that people would be saved. Lord, we pray for our broken, divided world at this time. Oh Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for your help. We pray that your glory would be known throughout the world and people would repent and put their faith in you. Lord, please be with us as we go out into our lives. Give us strength to fight the good fight of the faith, to walk with you, to be salt and light for you in our lives. Help us to do the task that you put before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.